hello welcome back welcome to modern medieval the podcast i am megan i'm hello and um welcome back if or welcome if you've never heard us before Yes, indeed. Um, This week, Ello and I are doing a very casual week. We're just going to share our favorite kind of little medieval story, tale, whatever you want to call it, because (laughs) (laughs) we both had surprisingly big, busy weeks last week. Ello, do you want to share first what you had happen? So I found a temporary job. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm very excited about, which starts Monday, and I had to move to London to do it. Um, and so that was kind of a whirlwind for me. And yeah. Um, yeah, all things like packing, and you know, once you're settled into a place and having to unpack and then repack and you know, all that kind of thing. And Megan as well had a big week as well. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I wasn't going from one country to another, but. I had the official move out from London to my new flat in Manchester for my PhD. And so that was quite a journey. <laughs> yeah, but arguably I think you had a harder <laughs> thing to do because, I mean, I had to pack up a suitcase and a half and you had to pack up an apartment and unpack it. So That's very true. Yeah, and I, I think thought- this was more tiring. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to pack up my cat and take him. Oh, which- how was packing Bowie? It was good. I felt really bad because I had to give him um, drugs because he's a very kind of like anxious cat. So for the car ride um, and it's just for both of our good for anyone who's listening and like anti-pet drugging. Like I hate doing it, but it just makes it so much better for him. That's fair enough. And so the first like hour of that, I felt really bad. Maybe not hour, like half hour. He was not amused because I basically drugged him, packed him up, and we left. Like there was, right. it was instantaneous. So it took a while for it to affect. So he was not happy the first few minutes in the car and I felt really bad, but then he just slept the rest of the way. That's so, good. That's good. Yeah. And he's adjusting, um, doing a lot better when, cause I left Thursday with him, right. packed up, mm-hmm. came here, signed my contract, spent the night and he was, you know, like, what is happening? This place is new. It smells brand new because the flat I moved into is a new build. Oh, nice. So, like, I had to take styrofoam out of, like, the fridge and turn it on. Same with the oh. dishwasher and the oven. Like, everything is literally just installed. But you know what? That's probably nicer than having to decrust the fridge because that's what we had to do when we moved um, into a flat last year. Yeah. So, yeah, he chilled with that. And then I drove down to London from Manchester Friday morning. What a trooper. In the rain, which was stressful because the roads and the water kicked back. But uh, (laughs) then loaded up the rest of my flat, which I thought was just going to be a few bags and pots and pans. And, you know, the tale where that's just not true. And the car was literally filled to the brim. Like, literally. But um, our dear friend Paula helped out. Bless her. Um, Kind, kind soul. (laughs) Lovely soul. Um, so yeah, we, we did the rest of the flat and then she came up to Manchester with me and we drove back up to Manchester from London. Did you both drive or did you just drive? Just me. She's not, she hasn't driven in years. I mean, she lived in New York for a long time. Oh, fair enough. But, uh, that drive took fucking forever. It was like a six hour drive, five, six hour drive. Really? Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was that. We got stuck in a lot of traffic. Okay. It was Friday. Yeah, Um, that makes sense. And there was rain and then rush hour. 
finally got here, unload the flat. That wasn't bad. And then returning the car was the most stressful thing I've ever done. How and come? we kept driving past where the car return place was. I think we had to like re-Google Maps it six or seven times. We were driving in circles. I was losing it. I've never felt so happy to like get rid of something. Fair enough. <laughs> so, but yeah, Bowie was really upset that night. Very, very uh, expressive verbally. Well, yeah, she didn't sleep also because of that. Yeah, no. Uh, and then yesterday we unloaded my flat and it actually feels like a home now. And then she Yay. today. So for those of you who were not ready to listen to my, my journey, but yes, it's been about four days of just... Apocalyptic, it sounds. Really apocalyptic. A lot. <laughs> but I'm settled. I am now home. And Yay. Megan is ready to get medieval in Manchester. All the others. So, yeah. So that's why today, everyone, we are doing casual. Yeah. I think, Elo, maybe you should start us off. Okay. I can't recall what you're talking about. So I'm going to talk about a French um, tale. No, we're both going French. The Châtelaine de Vergy. And um, my relationship to this story is kind of, um, well, kind of, well, anyone who's gone to Oxford and done French will know about this because it's the first is in the first year curriculum mm-hmm. and um, I got taught this by uh, my very modernist professor who his name is Patrick McGuinness who does only like 20th century poetry and that kind of thing and so he had no affinity with the medieval okay. and so what he did was basically make us read the book and then kind of like make it kind of very modern and okay. talking about themes that are very modern, which, you know, actually for this podcast works very well. Yeah, that, was like, that um, sounds exactly what we do. <laughs> but for what we were meant to do with that text, it was not that good. Or at least I didn't do that well on that text. <laughs> Fair enough. Because he didn't like it very much, I think, as well, mm. which didn't help. But no. so for the dear audience, I will quickly tell you what it's about. Um, yes, please. So it's a poem. Mm-hmm. It's shorter than the Roman de la Rose ones or by Christian de Troyes. Okay. Um, and so you may not have, you may have heard of it, you may not have heard of it. Mm-hmm. It's a courtly um, love story. Okay. It was written allegedly in the 13th century. The author is unknown. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was popular even in the 15th century. And here's where it gets kind of interesting because Marguerite de Navarre, I don't know mm-hmm. if you mentioned her. Have we mentioned her? Possibly not. So just go ahead so and elaborate. <laughs> she's a very cool French author. Um, I think one of the first. And she wrote The Heptameron, which is kind of like a take on Boccaccio's uh, Decameron. Okay. And so she reinterpreted stories. And this is one of the stories that she reinterpreted. And so that's kind of cool as well. And so the plot is as follows. So there are three characters actually four, sorry, the unnamed, an unnamed knight, mm-hmm. um, the Duke of Burgundy, mm-hmm. his niece and his wife. Okay. And then there is an animal, a pet dog. And so the story goes as follows. The knight um, falls in love with the Duke's niece and she feels kind of uncomfortable with, you know, starting a relationship with him. So what she does is she says that in order for them to start this relationship, he had to promise never to tell a soul about about it. Mm-hmm. So they have this love affair and they had a way of making sure that no one saw them, which was that the niece would bring down the dog 
when the coast was clear. Okay. And he would go back up and, you know. But because of that, he was seen sometimes in that area. He was kind of handsome, I think. It's not said in the text, but I'm going to assume that he was because the Duke's wife liked him. And so she tried to seduce him. And he said, oh, no, I'm sorry, I can't do this because I am in love with someone else. And despite him, she goes to the uh, Duke and says that he tried to seduce her. So he's going to get, the knight's going to get excum- excommunicated and you know, so it was going to be a very big deal, a question of honor. And so the knight tells the Duke in confidence that the person he actually loves is his niece. Now, this is when the terrible thing happens is that the Duke tells his wife. And so his wife, in order to you know, spite her niece, actually makes a joke about the dog and in front of both the niece and the knight. And that's when the real tragedy ensues, whereby the niece knows that um, the knight has betrayed her. Mm-hmm. So she dies out of despair. So the knight tries to find the niece and he finds her dead. So he commits suicide. Then the duke finds both of them dead. And so he realizes the impact that his wife had had. And so he kills her and he becomes a knight templar. Okay. I didn't know, but this is what the internet says. And so this is a story. And so it's kind of short. It's written in verse in octasyllables. Goodness, I'm bad at poetry. Do you know which ones I mean? The ones that octa. Oh, and uh, not pent- octameter. Octameter, that's the one. It rhymes well. The mm-hmm. story is kind of simple. Lots of my friends chose to do um, the medieval paper because obviously the medieval tales in French medieval tales are short. <laughs> right. So it's easier to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has something kind of, you know, very what my professor did with us, which was to tell us all about how that story actually has some things that we discuss further on in literature and that come back. So the first one is, of course, love, space, the idea of where the action takes place, the hidden space, the public space, the difference between the two, when the events actually happen, some happen at night, and those are the ones that you're not meant to see, and the ones that happen during the day, which are the ones of public knowledge. There's sex, which obviously leads all stories. Um, And, you know, that's pretty much the general dynamic. And I thought that given today's theme, it would be a good story to bring to the table. Yeah, I haven't uh, heard that one. I'll have to check it out. Um, When you mentioned, you know, the Roman de la Rose earlier, that is a very iconic medieval poem. And it's the famous poem by Christine de uh, Pizan's response to it. And everyone, I think, has seen some image of the penis tree which yeah, comes yeah. from a medieval illustrated manuscript that is in reference to the Roman de la Rose. So it's nice to hear something that's not that story and that yeah. conflict. And it's actually a great parallel kind of to the one I'm talking about because there are ideas of secrecy, public and private, female despair. So today I wanted to talk about, building on what Ella was doing, I want to talk about Melosine or Melusina. Uh, She's a figure of folklore and mythology, and she's a female spirit of fresh water or a a sacred spring or river. She's usually depicted as a woman with a tail, kind of like a serpent. 
So not a fish, mm-hmm. though she has also been identified as like a mermaid. There's lots of different stories about her. And it's just the waist down. So the top is always feminine. Mm-hmm. And she has quite a few legends that are connected to the northern and western areas of France, Luxembourg, and the Low Countries. So, you know, Belgium, the Netherlands. And so, for example, the House of Luxembourg, which ruled the Holy Roman Empire from 1308 to 1437, as well as parts of Bohemia and Hungary, uh, the House of Anjou and their descendants, the House of Plantagenet, so the kings of England, the Plantagenets, and the French House of Lusignan. So um, all of them are said to have been descended from Melusine in one form or another. So She's this really, I find, curious, at least as an American coming out. I had never really heard of her until I came to the UK. And yet she's so ingrained in, you know, these histories and these stories. And I think that's quite interesting because there's this sense of mysticism and monstrosity linked with her as well as... um, you know, the the stories, as I'm going to say, are betrayal on behalf of the men, but it's not kind of, it's not a vengeful action. It's kind of more out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. So one of the tales of Melusine says that she herself was the daughter of a fairy or a mystical creature uh, named Pressine and the King Elinus of Albany, which is now modern day Scotland. So... For one reason or another, uh, Melusine's mother leaves her husband and takes her daughters to the Isle of Avalon, which we recognize from the King Arthur legends. After Elinus breaks an oath that to never look at the mother and the daughter in a bath, because when they're in water, they turn into their you know true form, if you will. Um, so this pattern occurs in other stories where Melusine marries a nobleman. And part of their agreement was that he must give her privacy in her bath. And the story, each time she ends up leaving the nobleman because he breaks this oath. Some of the stories is that she like falls in love, like truly falls in love with a nobleman whose name is eluding me at the moment. It's like... Uh, Rolf or something like that. I could be wrong. But yeah, so the the male, it's he breaks the oath because he's curious. You know, they're together. They have lots of children. Um, and he's also not supposed to see her during childbirth. I'm, I'm assuming it's some similar, you know, serpent I'm form assuming. emergence, mm-hmm. right? But again, yeah, the, the, the privacy versus what he's allowed to see. Like I said, she shows up in a lot, a lot of different um, tales, Perhaps the most famous of this Melusine Tales is by Jean Darat, composed about 1382 to 1394. So it seems like we're also both dealing with high Middle Ages to late Middle Ages. And so the Melusine version appears in a collection of his quote-unquote spinning yarns, which are told by ladies at their spinning coudrettes. So... I kind of like that because we use like, oh, I'm spinning a yarn, which means telling a tale. Mm-hmm. And so that like, Weaving yeah, as well. exactly. I really like that's very poetic. I do too. I use it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and so in his version, he goes into deep depth about the relationship to Melusine. Oh, and uh, Raymondin, that's their, 
that's him, not Rolf. Right. I got an R. And this (laughs) story was translated throughout time uh, in German in the 1450s into a chat book, which is like a little pocket book, which I thought was very nice. That's cute. (laughs) Twice in English in 1500. Right. So like I said, there's lots of different versions, but one little element I want to talk about in another one of the um, versions of her story. So this is again, Jean de Raz, uh, which is this tale, Melusine ou la noble histoire de Lusignan. So Melusine or the noble history of Lusignan, which I mm-hmm. mentioned at the beginning, they're a house that connects their roots to her. Mm-hmm. So initially she decided to forgive his like transgression. And right. others tales, you know, she instantly like, uh, turns into a winged serpent or a dragon and flies away in despair. Right. However, in the Raz form, following the murder of one of their sons by another, so what is that, fratricide, fratricide, right. uh, Raymondin denounces his wife publicly and kind of accuses her for that, you know, blaming her monstrous nature for her son's murderous or monstrous nature. And at this point, she becomes brokenhearted and like a curse takes right. place. It's uh, interesting as well because it reminds me of Antigone. Yeah, no, like there's you can hear echoes. Yeah. Um of lots of different legends and tales in this. So Antigone definitely is one. Uh, she also is considered one of the pre-Christian water fairies. Right. So Lady of the Lake, mm. which is, you know, Lancelot and King Arthur, which is could be considered a little bit earlier. There's also other like Greek roots yep. related. So I find that really compelling. And I just want to share from the Dara um, edition kind of what happens in her curse because her curse was her mother had said, your husband will betray you. Right. And then she'd be condemned to become holy serpent or right. dragon and losing her you know, possibility of being human. And I just think that with, you know, our kind of constant discussion of the patriarchy, as well as with what my research is going into for my (laughs) PhD and monstrosity and unwilling martyrs and everything that this is also just a heartbreaking passage. So I will read it out and we can maybe talk about it and see how it relates to yours as well. That's fine. Okay. If you had not been false, I would have been spared pain and torment, and I would have lived like a natural human woman, and I would have died a natural death with all my sacraments, and I would have been buried in the church of Notre Dame de Lusignan, and my day would have been celebrated. But you have inflicted upon me an obscure penance that stems from my past misfortunes, and for this reason I must suffer until the day of judgment because of your falseness. I pray God may forgive you. Harsh. So harsh. It also kind of, I mean, you know, if we deconstruct this and put it in kind of a feminist context, mm-hmm. it makes it kind of seem like the burden of being a woman is expressed in a way. Exactly. There's it's, a whole thing about bleeding and dying and the cycle of life and... Yeah, well, literally the male gaze. Because yeah, it's the, male gaze, the yeah. gaze of Raymondon that condemns her. And reading this out loud, I can't believe I haven't noticed this earlier. It actually links me to my all-time favorite poem, which is by the modernist early 20th century poet H.D. or Hilda Doolittle. Oh, I've never read her. 
and her poem Eurydice. So she was involved, you know, with T.S. Eliot, Virginia Woolf, kind of that crowd. And so she took Greek legends, particularly that was like what she loved, Greek legends and myths, and retold them from the female perspective. Oh, that's Because they're always male. And I'll just read the opening stanza and the last stanza. Right. Or I'll read the first two opening stanzas and the last stanza. (laughs) Just because, so the tale of Eurydice, for those of you who don't know, Eurydice married Orpheus. Yeah. Who... After their wedding, they were so in love, she gets bitten by a snake and dies and is taken down into Hades, to the underworld. Orpheus has amazing abilities with music and is able to convince Hades with his magic flute to let him bring Eurydice back to living because she was snatched unfairly. And Hades says, okay, but you cannot look back until you are both on the earth's soil and the sun. Mm -hmm. And so Orpheus you know, she is following him and he cannot look back, but he senses that she's there. He steps into the sunlight and then turns as she is emerging, but she has not fully ascended. And so she is swept back into the darkness by his gaze, by his impatience, if you want to look at that. But we're supposed to be like, oh, poor Orpheus. He was robbed of his love, which he was, but it's also like patience. You're DJ by HD, the beginning. So... So you have swept me back, I who could have walked with the live souls above the earth, I who could have slept among the live flowers at last. So for your arrogance and your ruthlessness, I am swept back where dead lichens strip, dead cinders of moss upon ash. And then the last line, which or last part is just beautiful. She says, before I am lost, hell must open like a red rose for the dead to pass. And for those of you who haven't read this poem, read it. It's in seven different, I like to think of them as movements, like operatic Mm -hmm. or musical movements. And there's a beautiful turn in the poem where she re-embraces her Mm. sense of self. But that idea of like, if you had not done this, this would not have happened to me. And from the Melusine bit I read, you know, it's like, if you had not been false, I would have been spared. Yeah. The grammatical use of the conditional, which kind of like determines the rest. Exactly. It's so interesting though too. how like I find very interesting how we find things that are medieval, right? And it mm-hmm. seems kind of unrooted in time. And then you speak about it and actually becomes kind of this, you know, timeless tale and timeless story. Right, exactly. And the universality of human error and human flaw, which is part of the reason why Greek, you know, tragedies and comedies are so yeah. beloved even today, yeah. not just because they, you know, set the, the structures for which us to follow, but because there yeah. is that universality. But yeah, mm-hmm. in this, the, like in your tale, the ideas of jealousy, we both have yeah. secrecy, we both have curiosity. Space, sex. Right. My professor, he was like, in order to study literature, you have to know this. Literature is about sex, time, space, and memory. If you know this, you know everything. <laughs> and if you think about it, all stories can actually be linked to at least one of these themes. No, yeah, I mean, that is very true. It's like when, what is it? There's like the 13 endings. It's like every story has to end in one of those yeah, X amount true. of ways where it's like monster gets girl, monster loses girl, someone turns into the monster, the apocalypse. The day yeah. is saved. The bad guy wins. You know, I can't remember who it's by, but yeah, there's like only a finite number of endings. This could have been disproven, but that's just making me think 
of yeah. that as well. So yeah, these are both like very archetypal stories that yeah. could relate. And I think it is quite perhaps telling, if not of the times, then just us as individuals that we both yeah, we chose something. We didn't even know what the other one was choosing. <laughs> yeah, which was kind of a fun uh, process exercise, or exercise. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wanted to mention as well, I don't know if you mm-hmm. knew this, but I think it might be, you know, given that we're speaking about this right now. Um, some Greek tales have been rewritten and one of them was Antigone particularly was rewritten by a French playwright and he mm-hmm. rewrote it in um, the Second World War during the time of the resistance. And he then played it, he put it on and then basically it was kind of like, as you know, the themes in, the, in that um Greek tragedy are so important and it's perseverance and right and wrong and all that and they basically banned it from being reproduced so it's kind of interesting as well because it's the timelessness of the the sentiment is just so real (laughs) yeah no Antigone is such a quintessential important the same thing happened in Poland during the socialist era because oh really the character of Antigone uh so in Polish Antigona is taken as kind of a an avatar for Poland So, and so when plays were produced of Antigone in Poland during that time, the audience could read the political inflections of the moment and silencing and everything in the play. And so, yeah, it's not cool for them, but like interesting. Yeah. So yeah, they took that as well. Just like this French playwright you're speaking of. I need to reread Antigone because I read it my... I remember who it is. It's Anoui. A-N-N-O-U-I-L-L-H, I think. Okay, yeah. yeah, look into that. But yeah, I mean, I haven't read Antigone. I read it my freshman year of high school, so... A long over, time ago now. <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. And then we read it, uh, I read it my first year at Berkeley, so my, my junior year, because I was a transfer student. Cool. But in my, my philosophy of, and literature course... So we were looking much more at the philosophical angles in that rather right. than the, the kind of like the ones. story and the literary aspects yeah. of it. Yeah. Oh, but I, so great. I find it's one of those stories, just kind of like Frankenstein, for example, where each time you return to it, yeah, you different. reread it differently. I've read Frankenstein five times. I've never managed to get through it. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, read it on my own. It was fine. Read it again. I hated it. Read it again was like this is such romantic over-the-top garbage you know and like whatever uh read it again and I was like oh this is great master slave narrative and then read it with one of my students when I taught it and you know just completely different readings and it's just it's cool when that happens I guess maybe cool is not the most academic term but it's all right we're modern medieval we're not yeah so yeah, thank you for sharing your your tale. And thank you. Hello. Yes. Anything I'm discovering with women and dragons is like it's something ours. I'm inevitably gonna like. <laughs> you know, Saint Margaret and the dragon. We've got Melusine who turns into a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> well, dragons, you know, they're just big dogs. They are just giant pups, giant winged pups <laughs> with scales. Anything else worth sharing? Any final kind of thoughts or exciting? I, I wanted to thank one of our listeners because mm-hmm. he proposed an episode and we are def- definitely considering it. It will definitely be 
coming your way from we're not going to say what it is for the other listeners who don't know what it is so um, <laughs> I wanted to thank this person great yes thank you unnamed person <laughs> oh sorry it's Sephrin. that's fine yeah Sephrin. thank you for your suggestion we really appreciate them and if it's not the first episode we do after you suggest it it's not that we vetoed it it's that no, we it's have to think pair it <laughs> yeah and as we've said numerous times in this episode, we had zero time this past week to prepare. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it will take us. Be patient with us, guys. This is a transitionary yes. moment again. <laughs> yes. But it's exciting to get back back into it. Yeah, for sure. Ella, why don't you start, you know, saying where they thing. can find us, doing the right. thing. So guys, Spotify, Apple Podcast, I think also Amazon now. Yes, right. we were up and we were live and then I checked it, but maybe it was the wrong link and I couldn't find us. But we, I have, I have an email confirmation that we are on there and I All haven't right. seen us once. So, so Amazon, Audible, um, YouTube, just by typing our name, uh, Modern Medieval, the podcast. Yes. Um, and you can find us on social media as well. So we've got a Facebook group, a Facebook, Facebook page by typing Modern Medieval podcast. You should find us. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find us on Instagram by typing podcast.modern.medieval. You can find us as well on email modern.medieval.podcast at gmail.com. And then I think finally the Twitter sphere. <laughs> yes, the Twitter, which is at medieval underscore modern. Now that I am officially moved and have nothing but to start preparing for my PhD and maybe finding a job, I will try to post some exciting medieval content on that there but yes please as usual email us tweet at us message us on instagram tag us in a story share us your comments questions concerns corrections yeah definitely images videos reading recommendations anything and everything we really appreciate it yeah thank you Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. So until next time, I'm Megan. And I'm Ello. And this is Modern Medieval, the podcast. <laughs> 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 <laughs>